I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. This episode, I talk with Christy Bauman, professor, therapist, author, film producer, mother, wife, friend, living and working in Seattle. We had the privilege of hosting Christy and her family here in Colorado for a screening of the film that she and her husband produced called A Brave Lament. And let me tell you, it was a powerful film uh, that you too can watch on Amazon Prime. I've been listening to the soundtrack all day as I drive about um, my life around town, and I am so stirred. This music is just getting into my soul. So before I introduce Christy a little bit more and and you hear our conversation, just a couple of things. Um, I want to again encourage you to subscribe and leave a review. That means so much and it helps the show become more visible to others. Thanks to those of you who have and who, who have expressed your appreciation for the women that I've had on the show. I am loving these conversations. And this is another example of me having a hard time ending. (laughs) So it's kind of long. And if you want to take a break and divide it in half for yourself, please go right ahead and do that. But you are going to want to listen to the whole thing because at the end, wow, I I just conclude with total goosebumps. And I'm going to talk about an organization that I reference in the show at the very end of this podcast. So you're going to want to tune into that. But for our lost story today, I thought that I would bring to you someone from the Bible, since Christy and I go deep into theology and feminist theology. And so I wanted to talk about a woman that, sadly enough, has just recently come to my attention. Many of you might already know her. Her name is Joanna. For me, she was a complete surprise. When I was studying various things this summer and looking at women in the book of Acts, one thing led to another, and I discovered that among the men and disciples trailing Jesus throughout Galilee, I knew there were women, and I always assumed they were women such as Mary Magdalene, um, from whom demons had been uh, released, or women who had been caught in adultery or whatever. I stumbled upon Luke 8 with new eyes, and I finally found Joanna, wife of the manager of Herod's household. So this was a woman of means who was trailing him through Galilee. I can only imagine the entourage that would have been with her if she was a woman with such wealth and stature. She would have had chaperones and attendants and a ton of people with her. She basically helped to bankroll the entire ministry of Jesus. And her story does not end there. She shows up again in the tomb. She is one of the women who first witnesses the resurrection. And Christy and I are going to be talking a bit about that in this conversation. Uh, We dive deep She is brilliant. She is working on what she calls the theology of the womb, which will be published uh, this fall. And I, I was challenged and embraced in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. All right, Christy. Hi, welcome. Thanks for letting me be here. I'm so it's so fun. You're live in my studio, aka my bedroom. I love it. (laughs) This is, uh, it's very beautiful and intimate, and it feels so good. Hmm. It feels so good. You feel like a kindred spirit, even though we technically met 24 hours ago. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Yep, probably because I, um, before you even got home, came into your house. 
took a shower and put my pajamas on and <laughs> greeted you and met you for the first time with my pajamas on, I felt right at home. Yeah, so all space. all awkward barriers were just gone, <laughs> removed move immediately. Them. Yeah. Well, Christy, yeah, there's just, I'm excited to go there with you today and would love for you to start off by telling us a little bit about who you are. Sure. So I began my work 11 years ago now, mostly um, I started by working with families who were doing missions and I worked for um, a a ministry that um, worked bringing people back from furlough and cross-cultural things and I realized in that process that there was a lot of trauma or there was a lot of things happening in high emotional places that I wasn't equipped to do and that really Christianity or theology and Bible verses had not helped me become equipped to do. And so mm-hmm. I, I wanted to start working in the psychological realm. And in that process, uh, I went to a seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. I was invited into my own story and into my own therapy. And I realized that actually I was coming to this work because I needed my own healing. Hmm. That started the process of becoming a therapist. Since then, in that journey, um, I've gone on to do my PhD and the work that I have found myself centered in is work with women and their bodies and how they engage sexuality for the most part with their faith Hmm. and how they've either come to not know how to do that because the church doesn't have very clear guidelines for that or the Christian home doesn't have conversation around the body and around um, sexuality in a very normalized way Mm -hmm. or even understanding of how God is intersected with that. Mm -hmm. So then I went through the last decade of having children and it was a very lonely process. And it's a very lonely process to have a child inside of you, to be inhabited mm-hmm. by a body and yeah. a soul and a creature moving, and to feel so alone as I felt through the process. And I realized that as women, there weren't many platforms to talk about this lonely place. And so whether that birth ended up in just having a child and postpartum depression, which was pretty normal, or there was a miscarriage or there was a stillbirth or whatever came in that scenario, there wasn't something you were going to put on Facebook. Hmm. And you weren't allowed to. And I started seeing those barriers where as a woman, I wasn't allowed at the table. And I wasn't allowed to bring my voice. And it just felt so contradictory of the God that I knew. Hmm. And I went on a journey to explore who God was in the in the image of God. If I was in the image of God, then what was the feminine in me? And where was the feminine in God? Mm -hmm. And at some point, probably to stay in my own salvation through having children, I needed God to be mother and I needed God to be woman for me to really believe that I was made in God's image Mm -hmm. and that God is just as much mother Mm -hmm. as God is father. Mm Mm-hmm. So the journey, you've been on a journey to discover that more. And yeah. where, where has that led? Yeah, to I have birthed all of my human children. I'm done with that. I have a seven-month-old who <laughs> we've called it quits. Um, but I am in the process, actually, today is the day I upload to my editor um, my book, Theology of the Womb. Okay. And so it's led me to birthing this book Mm -hmm. yeah theology of the womb Mm -hmm. now I've never heard that before is that something that I should know that's a thing that is a theology or is this something that you have coined it is not a theology okay it's uh, it's not a um a studied no it's not a word that you would find anywhere it's a it's truly what I've come to build and and I've had to find my theology through my womb and Hmm. so yeah it's completely an inception from okay well that makes me feel a little bit better (laughs) when I have really smart people like you talking about things that I 
just I'm like, where, what, why don't I know this? Yeah. It's comforting to know it's because it came from your own head mm-hmm. and study. So let's, let's talk about that though. What, what is the theology of the womb? Right. So again, I start the book out with a very, um, normal, normal scenario where I'm on a camping trip with our, ch- our church does an annual camping trip. And I'm on a church camping trip, and I'm helping my husband put a tent up, and our kids are running around, and our other family friends in the church are doing that. And um, my really good friend, Cherie, our pastor's wife, comes up to me and says real quietly, hey, do you have a tampon? And I'm like thinking, okay, wait, I'm my period came back because I'm, I'm still breastfeeding. So I'm like, I'm going to go look in the glove compartment get something for you. So I go in the glove compartment, pull out a tampon that I find, and I just hand it to her like a drug deal, like as smooth as you can imagine. I hand it to her. She just slides it down in her sports bra, thanks me, and then we just realize in that moment that we're 38-year-old women who've both delivered children. We both have three kids, and we are quietly tiptoeing around this subject matter. Hmm. And Andrew calls from us, what are you guys doing? He like wants me to come back right. and help with the tent. Mm-hmm. And we're like, nothing, we're coming. I'm coming. Cherie just needed something. And he's like, I'm going to tell all the guys at church that Cherie's on her period. And we just start laughing. Because in some ways, he illuminated what we were so silly mm-hmm. being secretive about. Yeah. And I just think that story was just, it was, it's such a normal thing that that would happen. Yes. Do you have anything? Do you have a pad? Do you have a tampon? And it's such a quieted place. There's something about that that's, why is that shameful? And as 38-year-old woman, like it makes me think of my young teen girls who the first year would, my one daughter made a Cheetos or a Doritos bag, emptied it out, cleaned it out. And that's what she would put her pads in and put that in her back pocket. Then she got really creative and she actually took a huge novel and cut out the middle of the pages to hide them in. And she would walk to the bathroom with the novel in her arms. Genius. And why? And why? And why 30 years later Mm -hmm. are we still hiding? That's the exact question that sent me on the journey. Hmm. This seems ridiculous. If I'm made in the image of God. Hmm. This doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to tell my daughters? Hmm. That was that was the the leading factor that kept me going, because I could have probably just kept doing what everyone else was doing. And then I thought, no, I want I want my daughter to know God. In such an intimate way, and she would ask those questions. I mean, she would see that there were. Boys preaching, men preaching. Where are the women? She would ask those questions. So that was coming at age three. At her age three. Mom, where are the women? Hmm. You know, and all she was seeing. And so I just knew I needed God to be bigger than he had been shown to me. Hmm. I needed something different. And I had to see if it was true or not. So I just started digging into research. I started digging into whether, you know, why were women sent into the wilderness? Why the red tent? Why were we living in the red tent? Why were, what was happening in those places? Mm-hmm. And was it because we were impure that we had to flee or couldn't be touched? Um, so that came into a lot of research minded, right? Right. Um, and did you find, I mean, is there research out there that can ad- accur- accurately talk about the culture back then? Right. And the culture, it is there and it's strong. When you look to the Christian part of it, there is a sense where there's a little bit of, it doesn't translate over. And my guess is because men were translating it Hmm. and they didn't know how to translate it any other way. But as far as the way the encampments happened with the tribes of Israel Mm -hmm. and how they were centered around the Holy of Holies, which was the center of the camp. So everything was positioned further out that were um, less powerful. So meaning like the outer parts of the camp were the people who stayed up all night 
and watch to make sure no one could get in. So you had your most precious thing in the center Mm -hmm. and your most powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And it blood sacrifice is what they were doing at that time. And so that's the, what you would do in the Holy of Holies is you were offering sacrifice. Well, when a woman would bleed, there was something about the power in blood that would contend or they thought would push back against the power within the Holy of Holies. And so they would have the women when they were bleeding leave the camp because they were in a state of, it's called sancta, but of power. of um, So the sanctuary, that which holds the blood, hmm. is the sanctuary. And so the sancta was being... Um, like in conflict? Yeah, or? almost like whenever they tell you to turn your cell phones off, whenever the plane is taking off, so that mm-hmm. it doesn't interfere with communication. I mean, that's like the thing that comes to my mind. But there yeah. was a sense of not crowding the power wow. structure. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, through a, at, that, at that time, everything was done in war and battle and that patriarchal view. So this more interpersonal, spiritual the divine, mm-hmm. the deity, I think was just less understood. And mm-hmm. it was more like, we're not going to, we, we've got this down. We make a blood sacrifice. The priest, one priest is allowed into the tabernacle. He can die if he's not cleansed. We have a rope around him that we pull him out. So there's something of, this is powerful. We're not going to mess with it. And when we see it happening in a woman's body, mm-hmm. we don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we have to separate ourselves because we're talking life and death here. And that's what I learned in the research is a woman's blood is signifying life and death. Hmm. Some cycle of life and death. Wow. And yeah. That's so, yes. Actually, it's both every month. Every month, it's both. Hmm. And so it's like a church calendar. A woman's body, a woman's womb is basically the church calendar happening again and again. This life, death, life cycle. And so... You know, we as the church, we follow this idea of ordinary days, Advent, we wait expectantly for Christmas, then Easter comes with the death and resurrection, and we practice these, as part of our faith, we practice these dates. Well, it's the same in this 28-day cycle in a woman's body, but I didn't know how to connect that to understand God. Hmm. I didn't know what it meant to be a co-creator. I did not have any idea that the image of God that he put in women was to create Hmm. because he is the creator. Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't know about your, you know, mother or what you heard as a child, but we don't think of it as a sacred thing. We think of it as the curse. That's Mm -hmm. what it was called for me Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. the curse. Yes. So how then do we begin to think, think of it in terms of this hopeful, beautiful, sacred, intimate thing we share with the creator. Right. We, and we have to unpack that and rewire that because it's true. Many would still even want to call it the curse. But I would say when you watch any beautiful act like a birth, the doctor there, the midwife, the doula, the one catching the child, I mean, we all know if you've been in a birthing room, there's an energy that's almost tangible when life comes into this world. Hmm. And all of a sudden we feel it. And it, it feels like a holy of holies experience. And the person being able to touch, I think it's one of the highest callings hmm. to be able to be the first to touch a new life. So the idea that a woman gets to co-create with God to be a creator mm-hmm. and you get to hold in your body that cycle of life and death. Now, it's costly. I'm not saying it's not costly, but I don't consider it a curse one bit. Mm-hmm. I consider it such a great honor that I get to know God and the part of God as creator through that process. And I get to show that actually to the world and mm-hmm. display that. Mm-hmm. The work that my body takes mm-hmm. to bleed to break, to grow something, to birth something. Hmm. It makes me think about if that's what we share with him as women, it makes so much sense then that women were the ones to first witness the resurrection, Hmm. that they were the ones there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful thought. 
talk to me a little bit about the comparison between what you just described that occurred at Jesus' birth, the blood, the major theology. Yes. Talk about that and the parallel of what we see when he's born, what we see when he is resurrected, Mm -hmm. the role of woman in that. Mm -hmm. So this concept of manger theology is not mine. Um, Nikki Giovanni is out in Virginia Tech, and she is a beautiful poet and scholar, and she talks about this idea that we need to look at the manger just as much as we look at the crucifixion. She doesn't go into detail. She kind of just leaves it at that. But it had me so curious. And so I started to compare the elements that are used. And if we look, there's parable, right, in the Bible everywhere. There's story. And we're supposed to look at where these stories are the same or, or different. And what I noticed is the, the manger theology is that when a woman births, there's a comparison or and I'm not saying her role is comparable to Christ's role on the cross, but the crucifixion has the same elements. There's blood, there's a body broken, and there's water. And so these elements that are happening for birth to happen. So Christ birthed death so that we could have resurrection. And so where death doesn't have a final say now is because it was, it was birthed. It, It Basically, birthing death is the complete opposite of what you should do. So if you can survive birthing a death. Now, what Mary's doing in, in a manger theology is she's birthing the Savior. She's birthing that promise, which it'll lead to his death. But but the same thing of a body being broken and, and her being invited into that. And there is a lot of more um, Catholicism in that I could go into, but it kind of deters you from just staying in the idea of what if that is true? Like, what do we do with manger theology? Mm-hmm. Um, I could go into more like specific parts of that, and I do in the book. But I guess what I would say is, what is it about a woman who doesn't want to enter what it means to break their body and bleed for life to be, for life to come? Hmm. And and Christ, in a sense, is walking that road, the Via Dolorosa, that road of suffering, to a place where he inter- he he births eternal life. He births death that becomes an eternal life. Hmm. And we are invited to at least partake in tasting that hmm. through the manger or through the bir- birthing mm-hmm. ourselves as women. That's really crazy to actually, the image that popped into my mind was the Via Dolorosa being the birth canal. Wow. I mean, if you think about the agony, the pain, all leading toward, but you have to, you have to be thinking about it as birthing death. I mean, I just never would have thought of it like that. Yeah. So these are ways in which we as women share in the divine. Oh, completely. And it, and in some ways, we just were never asked to think about it this way. We were never, I don't know, I have yet to go into a church where someone has taught me these tools to mm. look at my own body as the body of Christ. Mm. And yet, that was always being said, but I didn't really understand through a feminine body what that meant at all. Mm-hmm. But I feel so known when you say something like the birth canal is the Via Dolorosa, all of a sudden I feel known in a way that I have did not feel known in those two ten years by myself trying to birth. Hmm. But when we find God in that place, all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, what a magnificent invitation. Oh, like I am made in the image of God, and that is phenomenal. Hmm. I'm, in, I'm in awe mm-hmm. in those moments. Yeah. Of, of the cost of creating and the power of it and, and the grief that comes with it. All of it. It's mm-hmm. all tied in there. Mm-hmm. So talk. let's talk a little bit about how you've experienced, not experienced that in the church. You talked about loneliness. You mm-hmm. mentioned the shame that we as women have around mm-hmm. just the most natural thing in the world we all experience, mm-hmm. our period. Mm-hmm. Um where else where else do you see this so 
grossly lacking in the church. And I guess my other question would be, what's your vision Mm. from what might be different? Right. And I, I do think the idea of the red tent, right? If we look at days of old and we look at what our mothers were doing before and what is not happening in a very individualized society now, and I would say in, in some ways a very sterile church, we don't have a church that sends its women off. And in a sense, right, like I can understand there being a pushback, like, wait, you're going to send us away. But I think in a way for us to cultivate and care for our bodies. In the red tent, there weren't just women having their period. There were grandmothers who were in menopause, holding newborn babies of women who were in postpartum. There, I mean, we're talking the gamut of our a woman's birthright is in the red tent. That's where she learns who she is, where she came from, and who she's going to be. Her legacy, her stories are told there. So I think the stories have been silenced in the church because we aren't cultivating a place where Mm. women can know their birthright. Mm. You know, I talk about that. We read in the Bible, if you read down a, a lineage, you'll see this was son of Jesse, son of David, son of... I'm like, but women bore these humans but there's only pa- a male patriarchal lineage that you see in the Bible mm-hmm. for the most part. Right. And every once in a while, we'll see a woman's name, and man, do we jump on it. <laughs> but those stories stopped getting told in the Bible. And I think that's where the church, where do we bring women's stories, their birthrights, their legacy, I think is in a place where we gather together when we're bleeding together. Hmm. Hmm. And that... It doesn't happen. Right. At all. It does happen in other cultures. Hmm. It still does present day mm-hmm. in other cultures. Hmm. Um, but in Christianity, no. Side note, mm-hmm. did you find historical evidence for the red tent, or is that merely a metaphor for what happened? So there is there is evidence. Now, again, it's not, I don't know that you would call it Christian, right? Because Christ wasn't... But is there biblical evidence? Right. In those cultural th- evidence. Yes. So there's cultural am- evidence of, and it's still happening today. Again, but not in the certain people groups. But I would say I I list off culture after culture after culture that still go into a, a room or a space together, and it's where there is hair braiding, hmm. massage. Nail polish. I mean, you even look present day to how they do spas, mm-hmm. Russian spas, these bath houses, mm-hmm. like Jewish mikvahs, like the bath right. of cleansing after a time of a period. So there is, and what I've noticed is it's tied to the link of like baptism, where there's a cleansing, where there's a rejoicing that something's been birthed and now it it's cleansed and now it goes off into the world itself. And that's something mm-hmm. we're doing with our bodies. So there's a sense of we go through that process of birthing our period, even if we don't birth a human. Mm-hmm. And then there's a cleansing process mm-hmm. that we lived through that mm-hmm. cycle. Mm-hmm. And there's just intention of honoring our what our bodies are doing, the cost of creating. Because if we don't honor the cost that it takes to create and we don't care for our bodies in that process, we don't keep creating. Talk to me about that a little bit more. What do you mean by that? I think we just start to silence. I think we stop living out of that place. I think we start to look at it as just a curse. Hmm. And our birthright was that we get to create. Every woman has eggs in her womb when she's in her mother's in utero. So again, whether or not you end it with infertility and all these kinds of things, I, I, I can't just give that scope, but God's intention when made in the image of God, is that you would have the potential to create life. Mm-hmm. More humans. That's a that's a birthright of any woman, mm-hmm. whether or not she chooses to exercise that or not. But we don't know how to engage that birthright or that story. We're just so limited around it. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, other cultures, this is a very known thing, that this is... You're a woman who's come of age. We're going to dress and dance. You have your period now. We are going to sit with you and have the umbrella and walk through town. And men are going to give you money 
as gifts and women are going to praise you and give you blessing because they love that you are going to continue bringing life into this world. Mm. And in a world where there's so much death, we, we are desperate for women to keep creating life. Again, I'm not limiting us to just human life, but I'm saying mm-hmm. we have all the tools that remi- teach us. If we study our bodies, we have exactly the protocol of what it means to create. Mm. So what would you say to friends who are single or struggling with infertility, mm-hmm. miscarriage? I know you yourself have mm-hmm. had your fair share of mm-hmm. grief. Mm-hmm. How do you still instill this mm-hmm. beautiful, hopeful sharing in the image of God for, for women who have so much heartache around it? Right. Again, it is so, and I would never speak to someone who is in the midst of burying something and tell them that they were made to create because we actually don't have the power to do anything with death but bury it or create again. So Hmm. I would never come to someone who is infertile, who wants, longs to create a child, for instance, and tell them, well, this is all, this is your birthright. This is all you were made to do. That, that, that just absolutely is heart wrenching. Um, I, I, it's almost like I need you to step out of that individual and say, you know the heartache, the heartache and the suffering that Christ knew when he was birthing death in the crucifixion with hope for an eternal life that we didn't see on this earth. Mm-hmm. We, we, I still live with the truth that I will not see the children that I have buried. And I don't know when and if I will see them and in what capacity. And I have to live with that. But it doesn't mean that within me is not the story of what it means to create. And I think we grow, we create or birth, and then we bury. And that cycle is ever happening. Hmm. It's ever happening in our womb, and it's ever happening in our story. And for some of us with tragedy or trauma, we will grow, and we will create, and we will always have to bury it. Hmm. And that is a harsh reality that, again, I'm not in charge of knowing why. But that is just part of the process. It doesn't change that we still aren't invited into the experience and the invitation of knowing God as creator. Hmm. Because that's the work of the creator, mm-hmm. is to grow, to birth, and to bury. And that's kind of what you meant by the cost. Mm-hmm. Like knowing, weighing the cost of yeah. what that takes yeah. and requires of us. Yeah. And it, it feels bigger than human life. I think we mother, I think women are always invited to mother whether they're mothering churches, whether they're mothering children, whether mm-hmm. they're mothering books, whether they're mothering paintings, whether they're mother hospitals, people groups. I think it is just there, and there's something of what it means to create life, and I mean that in the sense of just life, um, something that feels alive and mm-hmm. real and good. Mm-hmm. And I think the roadmap is right there hmm. in our abdomen. Hmm. Wow. I I mean, it's what I've been defining as lovely, this idea of coming alongside God to bring forth life and beauty, Mm. really feeling like that is one of the intrinsic ways that we reflect him as women. Mm. Um, This feels like a whole nother deeper level to all of that. Mm. Um, In terms of intuitively, I knew that. Yeah, you did. Academically now theologically, historically, it, it's so much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think, what's your vision for what, how things might look different for women, for those of us in, in church communities who might begin embracing one another differently, living this out? Each person has a theology. The theology of your womb versus the theology of my womb is so different. It's as different as our hair color as our body type shape, it's as different as the color of our eyes. I, I think creation, look at any part of creation. There's no leaf that's the same. There's no hmm. imprint that there's no fingerprint that's the same. So I think as 
my vision is as different as that is, as unique as that is, is as unique as you finding the theology of your womb. Hmm. So basically, what is your theology? My, my heart is that women start to see this and say, I have a place at the table. What does my voice look like in this? Meaning, what is, my, what is the theology of my womb? And that doesn't matter if they've never had kids, if they're not in a relationship, if they have had kids, if they've been infertile. It, what is the story of how I create and how I bury and how I grow or wait for hmm. something? Hmm. And how we come to that is usually how our story played out for us and how we want to come to that feels like that's our theology. That's the theology of my womb. That's the theology. And it's as different as the day is long. It's as different Hmm. as we look different from each other. Mm -hmm. Because I just think the creator is that particular and unique and rare. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that women would read this and be invited. They're invited to the table. And the more they know the details of their own story within their body, Hmm. it's the nuance of their voice. We start to recognize their voice and we hear them and we say, oh, I know that voice. I know that laugh. I know that touch. I know it's, oh, it's this woman. Oh, it's her. Oh, what a good woman. Hmm. Oh, I love when she speaks. Oh, I love when she sings. I love when she prays. Because they're all different and we need each other. So how would we... And I'm sure this is part of your book, but how do you guide people into exploring the story of their body? I mean, what are some of the first questions that you might have someone that you would ask someone who comes to sit with you in your cute little office in your backyard? Well, one of the first stories I ask most women to write is tell me the story of your breast. Hmm. If your breast were to tell me the story of what it's been like to be on your body, what would it say? What would the story be? Wow. And then you go in, I mean, you can go further of like, I have an image of a pelvic floor. Hmm. And I just say, what, whose fingerprints are on this pelvic floor? What names come to mind? What stories, what memory, what children have come through this passageway? Who has sat, who has entered Hmm. this pelvic floor? So I think it's just, you're engaging your body. I mean, you don't have to go to sexual parts of the body, but I go to feminine parts of the mm-hmm. body. You can go to the ha- your hair. Hmm. You know, who cut your hair first? Hmm. How do you wear your hair this way? How did you come to wear your hair this way? Our bodies in particular and our female bodies tell us stories that we have probably not listened to. Hmm. Hmm. I've been thinking about this lately that in this in the way that we most intimately reflect God through our femininity or our masculinity is also the the way that we are most assaulted, right? Yes. The unique assault against our femininity. Yes. So do you find that when you invite women into those questions, assault is right at its heels? Yes. Um, and that becomes the question of how do we bury? Hmm. And then how do we plant something again or live through, hmm. you know. But how someone is particular to bury is very important because we all have experienced death. And so how do we come to touch or see our breast? And when we know that we don't like to even touch or look at them because of that comment that someone said about them. Or when that man touched me that way and I didn't want that of course so places of harm and abuse and assault are right there they're right at the precipice every time because a part of creating is to bury and usually because there's a death and so yes death is always a part of the life death life cycle Hmm. always is Hmm. our our bodies tell us that it always will be we will always bleed Hmm. So one of your roles as a, as a therapist or through this book is to help women bury well. I mean, how do we learn how to do that? Right. And, and here's one tradition that is very much a part of a first menstruation is we were all meant to go and bury our blood in the earth. And so a practice was at moonlight 
women would take their young who were starting their period, their first blood, and they would, the girls would dig into the earth and they would leave their first blood and bury it back into the ground. They were burying the first time they were ever bleeding. So they were taught immediately, I bleed, I bury it. Hmm. Now either something will grow out of that, Mm -hmm. out of that soil, that rich soil, but we don't know when. Hmm. We don't know how. We don't know where. But Hmm. again, yes, that's what I'm asking. I'm asking women to go and bury their first blood Hmm. or bury their blood if they were never taught how. Right. So uh, what do, what's your advice to me in a more yeah. practical way yeah. with teenage girls mm-hmm. who, if I were to begin to talk like this, would roll their eyes mm-hmm. or just be so weirded out, right? And even though as a result of my own mom calling it the curse, I tried really hard to just be mm-hmm. open, honest, say the words, but still, they're the ones hiding pads and Cheeto bags. Mm-hmm. So how... How would you advise moms of young women to start thinking, helping them think differently, talking about things differently? Mm-hmm. Women, this, if you're going to talk about if there's any generational sin mm-hmm. passed down, we have been complicit to be silent. Mm-hmm. So I think the first invitation as mother is to break that silence and So if it's then menopause that you're walking through, you talk about that with meaning and depth and openness. You talk about normal things in the household that deem or need respect instead of hiding. So you bring to light Mm -hmm. where there's been quiet or silence. Mm -hmm. And I I do think ritual, marking, intention, rites of passage, Mm -hmm. these are things you know well. Mm -hmm. Again, I think those are the invitations that we have. We are building story. We are building rhythm. We are creating for our daughters how they'll come to look at their body. And even if they don't do it in front of you because it never started this way, mm-hmm. they will remember. They And they will have language, which is far less than we had coming the generation before because it wasn't talked about. Mm-hmm. So at least giving them language. I can't expect them to come and run in the middle of the night and bury their blood with me. But if they see me do it, then they at least can call me crazy, but be intrigued. Hmm. And their wildness gets ignited and rebirthed Hmm. into their own bodies. So I just think it's the invitation of the mother's exploration into that. And again, it's not going to look this life transforming way. But it does give them language that when they decide that they want to engage it, mm-hmm. whether it's when they birth their own children or when they raise their own daughters, they remember, oh, my mom wasn't afraid to talk about this. Mm-hmm. She wasn't afraid to celebrate this. She wasn't afraid to grieve this. Because I will say, women will be mocked if they bring forth this as a wild, glorious thing. When you bring out your blood to say this is beautiful and glorious, Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense. You will be made fun of so fast. Of course we hide it and we continue to hide it. But it sparks. It sparks an interest of not being alone and silenced. Mm -hmm. And I think so that's what you're Mm -hmm. up against is give them language. Yeah. When So my tradition now is that when their period starts, we sponsor... A girl, a young girl, you know, in another country who oh. would otherwise stop going to school at that same age. Yeah. We sponsor at least a month worth of sanitary pads. Wow. And I found some really incredible organizations that I'll talk about one. That's amazing. Um, and so that's been a fun way to just acknowledge your life goes on as normal, but not so for your global sisters. So I'm trying, taking steps, yeah. but oh. it is a lot to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of genera- like generational sin, like what you said, silence and breaking that is hard. Yeah, And traditionally in our Western culture, we, especially as women, everything is a power struggle. So even in sexuality, we don't see equipping each other to help you be the best in your beauty, in your sexuality, in your creating. 
it's a very isolated role and there's very much a secret. I know something you don't know. I know how to do something. And it feels competitive. Mm-hmm. Instead of, in most cultures, uh, the night before a woman got married, the tribe would come around mm-hmm. and each show a different sexual position to help equip women to be good, to to be able to make love and feel good in the process, mm-hmm. to help sustain marriages and relationships. That's a mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. When we live in a culture where it's about being airbrushed more sexy than the other. So it, it's crazy to think about how do we bring that to our daughters? Mm-hmm. You do not, you, how do I empower you? And how do I share with you all the things so that you can know how to navigate this world from a place of knowing and from a place of, of power. Mm-hmm. And and we share that. We don't hide that from each other. There's not competitiveness here. There is a sense of, oh, your body is speaking really loudly. What is it saying? Hmm. You're producing something glorious or you're learning to. Hmm. Again, that doesn't sound, in a teenager's mind, that might sound really different. But I think which just culturally, we have to come against our culture. And we're fighting that in so many areas. Hmm. Yeah, and that is that's still our that's still our invitation mm-hmm. as mother. Mm-hmm. I do think that what we one of the biggest differences we see culturally is that lack of generational involvement. Yes, you know the uh, we got into henna with Ella, nice. and it came from that tradition of the night before significant events in almost every culture in the world. There was henna was involved, yeah. the marking of the body mm-hmm. with joy. Mm-hmm. They found henna on mummies in Egypt. And so, but in those spaces of celebration, there were multiple generations. Yeah. And I think of now, like our, our um, bridal bachelorette yeah. parties, it's yeah. just a bunch of our friends, you know, yeah. same age. Mm-hmm. What wisdom are we imparting to one another right. <laughs> when right. we're all at the same stage of life right. versus mm-hmm. that beautiful, communal, feminine mm-hmm. send-off mm-hmm. that so many cultures do well. We have a family friend, and they are three generations into doing this tradition, but they go to like a, a bathing house, a women's bathing house. And so it's the mothers, the mother, the, and when the girls come of age, mm-hmm. the aunts and uncles, the aunts and uncles, the aunts come, <laughs> and the grandmother comes, and they're all naked. And it just teaches the daughter how normal yes. a body is. And they're in a place where there's all other naked women with normal bodies. Do you know how few times your daughters have probably seen a normal female body? Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. We're starving our, these generations of knowing what a woman's body even is supposed to look like. Yeah. And after engaging in the war of creating... Because that's when we see mm. marks on a body. That's when we see a body sagging. That's when we see... But it's all the marks where life has come. Mm. And we aren't showing our daughters. So we aren't equipping anyone to know how to then engage that conversation in mm-hmm. their mind. Right. To be proud of those marks. Mm-hmm. To look at them like war stories. Mm. I've been around... Campfire many a time with men telling me a war story, telling me a story of something they've hunted or a time they cut themselves. And yet, what would it be for women to talk about that? Hmm. To 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 lift our shirts and show our, our shirts. stretch marks. And... Show our stretch marks. To t- uh, talk about being torn, even a, a vaginal tear. Like we ha- we war. Our body gets broken, and we don't talk about it. We we silence it and we sterilize it and it is so unfair Hmm. because we're left alone in our minds trying to make sense of it Hmm. and I think there's a theology there I think I know God in such a more intimate way and it makes so much more sense Hmm. to me Mm -hmm. and it's so much more worthwhile and I do it with much more intention and purpose Hmm. I come to my body in such a different way when I co-create with the creator Hmm. Well, now I have chills coursing through my body. So what a great note to end on, okay. Christy. I cannot wait to read your book. When does it come out? Fall. Fall. Mm-hmm. I know. It's still a bit of a ways. 
Theology of the Womb. Theology of the Womb. Cannot wait. Thank you. And my hope is that this will change the way we view our bodies because, wow, what a vision you've lifted our eyes to. What a bigger story that you have invited us into. And I can totally see how that would make you fall more in love with your God and more purposed as a woman here. So thank you so much for sharing all that with us today. Yes, may it be. Thank you. Talk about a woman who embraces both strength and weakness, who fully embodies being both fierce and lovely. I'm going to have links to the various places where you can find out more about Christy, and I do hope that you will pick up her book when it is published in the fall, Theology of the Womb. Well, I wanted to tell you about the organization that I've come to love uh, to help with the tradition with my girls of sponsoring or helping with another girl in another country when her menstruation begins. It's called So Powerful, S-E-W, So Powerful. Jason and Cinnamon Miles live in the Pacific Northwest. They have a history with World Vision, and Cinnamon is a seamstress and had started a successful online business uh, where she was selling sewing patterns for doll clothes. As they learned of a particular need in one of the slums in Zambia, they knew that they could help. And so now they employ women in the slum who are seamstresses. They have learned how to make uh, reusable pads and, and liners. And then they engage women in the West who can sew to, to create, to make these small little purses and put in a note of encouragement. And so the purses go to Zambia. They're shipped through World Vision. And in Zambia, the women assemble the reusable pads and some clean panties and soap. They've now started another business making where women are making soap. And those little kits can be purchased, but they're also they're paired with health education. So they have some health educators going into schools, teaching about menstruation and how to how to stay in school during that time and providing girls with a solution. It's a beautiful thing. And you can be involved whether or not you can sew. I don't sew, um, but we can donate and we can write cards. If you can sew, you can download the pattern right there on their website and be involved that way. If you'd like to learn more, I've provided an entire resource guide called uh, a Global Sisterhood Guide, and it talks about So Powerful, as well as some other great organizations. You can head over to my website, bethbruno.org, and sign up for the email, and that will come straight to your inbox. I just love lifting up a great work around the world and partnering, pairing women, and especially women in the West, with women... Um, on the other side of the ocean that we might just better serve one another and be a part of each other's lives. That to me is living a big story. I hope you've enjoyed listening today. This is the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.